Hi, it's Ian Brody here. Welcome to the More Clients podcast. With me today is Brent Adamson. Brent is a principal executive advisor in the sales and marketing practice at CEB and co-author of the well-known books, The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer. With more than 20 years of experience as a professional researcher, teacher and trainer, Brent facilitates a wide range of executive level discussions around the world for Fortune 500 and Global 1000 executives in sales, marketing and customer service, including global sales meetings, keynote presentations, board level presentations and hands-on best practice workshops. Welcome to the podcast, Brent. Ian, thank you so much. Happy to be with you today. It is fantastic you're here because um, behind the scenes, it has taken us a long time to get this set up with diaries, etc. So I'm really glad you're on. I'm going to jump straight into it. Brent, um, especially related to your more recent book, The Challenger Customer, uh, tell us about some of the big changes in how large organizations are buying that you identified in your research and what that means for people trying to win them as clients, because that is so relevant to the people listening in today. Sure, Ian. If, let me tell you a little bit about the changes, and then if we, if you'd like, we can dig into why do we see these changes. What yeah. do we think is causing changes? The, um, um, you know, it, it, so it's CEB, at least in the sales and marketing practices, CEB, which is where I sit. You know, our sort of mission in life is to study uh, business to business sales and marketing, trying to understand what can we do as organizations to really reach a world class level of of sales and marketing. What's interesting is what we've really appreciated, have come to appreciate in the last you know, probably about five years of all the, the the analysis, the quantitative work, the qualitative work that we've done around the world across industries and go-to-market models and geographies, is that in many ways the single biggest story in sales and marketing today is not how we're selling or marketing differently. It's how our customers are buying differently mm. because that's that's what's really driving the change. So for anyone you know who's listening today who says, yeah, I think I've got this figured out, I'm a successful you know, I've been pretty successful in selling whatever role I'm in, and, and I've been selling successfully for a while. The story that I often like to share is the story not of how selling is changing, but is, but is, but that buying is changing. And as I like saying, you know, it's like, let me show you what happens when we take the old world of selling and run it into the teeth of the new world of buying, because mm. things tend to fall apart. And, and you know, for, for at least our purposes today, one of the really big trends that we're tracking in buying is just the rather dramatic and, and somewhat rapid, i.e. five, six years, a uh, rather dramatic increase in the number of people on the customer side who are now involved in a purchase decision. So the, the number of different stakeholders representing different functions, different geographies, uh, different roles, different uh, priorities and agendas who are all participating in a, in a purchase decision. In fact, uh, a big piece of our research over the last couple of years, we went out, we studied thousands and thousands of individual stakeholders involved in a B2B purchase around the world. And and simply ask that question, you know, regarding a, a typical B2B purchase, how many individuals in your company are involved in that purchase decision? That number came back at 5.4. So what mm. we're finding is on average, there's 5.4 individual members of that buying team, all who have a direct say in how that decision gets made. What's interesting as well, and it's not in the book because it's research we've conducted since the book came out. And the book only came out a year ago. Mm. Um, is that we we reran that data, and it turns out that 5.4 that we talk a lot about in the book is not a static number, but in fact a moving target. Because in the last 18 months, our research tells us that number has gone from 5.4 up to 6.8, so it's a 25% increase in just about 12 months. And and what's interesting is as I travel around the world and talk to virtually any industry, whether it's manufacturing, business services, you know, you name it. Um, we're finding the same phenomenon. In many ways, that 6.8 is its a real number. Some would tell you it's even more than that. But one way or another, I think it's a metaphor for the complexity that has come to uh, really dominate, the, the not the selling process, but the buying process. And what, what do you think is driving that? I mean, you can imagine five, six years ago, we're beginning to enter the recession. I guess people, are, organizations are becoming more risk averse. They don't want to spend money unless everyone's on board. 
Uh, but it seems like the trend's still continuing today. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about it, right? It's in some ways, this indeed is still, a, as far as we can tell, a hangover of risk aversion that really started in 2008, 2009, that, you know, as the economy is to some degree at least bounced back, there's just so much uncertainty out there that, that everyone is still a little bit worried or anxious to, to make those multi-million dollar decisions on their own, and probably rightly so. I mean, in many cases, these are business decisions where people put their careers on the line, and mm. nobody wants to be hanging out on that branch on their own. But, you know, what, what's also interesting, though, is that I think there's a number of other trends driving up this number um, uh, of purchase decision makers. You know, you remember, I don't know, when we all came up in sales way back when, right, it was the it used to be find the senior decision maker, right? Mm. Claw your way into the corner office, get into the C-suite, find that one person to get the deal done. But today it's purchased by committee. Mm. And what we know from those senior decision makers, the number one thing they care about is widespread support for that supplier across their team. So even if you could get to that quote unquote senior decision maker, you're going to find that they're going to push you out to everybody else. And, and one of the reasons why I think this really fascinating to me personally, Ian, is that Yes, there's this risk aversion. Nobody wants to be the person that signs off on that multi-million dollar pound euro one uh, uh, deal on their own. But the, the other thing that's interesting is, and I think more um, more relevant for everyone listening today, is that we as suppliers or providers of whatever business service or product that we sell are complicit in this trend. And what I mean by that is virtually everyone is in, every one of us in B2B sales over the last 5, 10, 15 years has gone on the same journey of moving from a a product selling posture to more of a solution selling hmm. posture, right? So rather than just selling an individual product or service that can be easily replicable, replicated, uh, and therefore easily commoditized, we add on additional products, additional services. We go out and we acquire new companies, acquire new capabilities, acquire new people so that we can tell our customer, we don't just offer you this, but we can offer you that, right? We can offer you so much more additional products, additional services that are going to add so much more value for your company. We're going to we're going to have an, a mobile app that, that allows you to access our capabilities in ways you never could before. Or we're going to have a, a HR version of what we're doing that's going to allow other parts of the team to tap into it. Whatever it is, we're trying to differentiate ourselves by expanding the scope and capabilities of the products and services that we sell, which, again, is a right answer. Today's not the day I'm going to tell you that's a bad idea because we all have to do that to avoid that commoditization mm. trap. But it stands to reason if we're going to have a value proposition that at its heart explains to our customer how we can add more value for more people across the customer organization, then it's only logical that more people across that customer organization are going to want to have a say in whatever gets bought. So so I was talking to a, a, you know, a, a company just yesterday. In fact, they do a, a accounting software for or accounting uh, services. They provide accounting services for their clientele. And one of the things that they want to do is introduce a mobile app for that. So now what's interesting, they used to call on financial advisors and accountants, but now they're calling on heads of IT as mm -hmm. well because the head of IT wants to know how that mobile app is going to tie into the rest of their IT platform. And, and so it goes, right? This is one of the things we find is interesting that suppliers, providers themselves are driving uh, driving this world that, that creates more people at the table. So as our solutions add more value, they, they, they're inherently more complex. They cover more people. Because you only get value when the whole organization gets value. There's more people involved, and therefore the decision making is is more complex. So what's the, what's the impact of that more complex decision making in terms of of, of how it affects a, a, a supplier um, in terms of what they need to do to win? 
Well, this is where it gets really frustrating, right? Because in many ways, we have to go down this road. It's a, you know, it, again, it's, it's like the, if the alternative is sell simple products can be easily commoditized. I think we'd all agree that's a bad place mm. to be. So, so you go down this road and, and you, you, you offer value to more people across the customer organization that naturally pulls in 5.4 and now 6.8. It pulls in lots of different people. And here's where things actually start to get kind of tricky because what we found is this world of the, the 5.4, the 6.8, well, I should pick one. Let's call it the 6.8. <laughs> uh, the world of the 6.8, is the, the problem here is not just a numbers problem, although that's how we often articulate it. There's so many people involved in this purchase. The problem we've come to appreciate is not the number of people, but the diversity of people involved in that purchase. The fact that virtually every one of those individual stakeholders represents a, a different function, a different role, a different geography, and as a result, a different set of criteria, a different set of metrics they use to measure performance for their part of their business. So they come to the table all with very good intentions. I'll, at least I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they have really good intentions, right? And they're, hmm. they're trying to make decisions on behalf of that part of the company that they represent that will help them and their teams perform effectively. But to the degree that those individual stakeholders don't have a lot of overlap across all of those different agendas, Let's, we often refer to those different agendas as mental models. They each have a mental model of what they're trying to accomplish on behalf of their company. And what happens is as those, as those individual stakeholders come together, either literally or figuratively around a table, to make a common decision on what they are going to do, the first thing that they're going to do, and we know this from a huge amount of behavioral psychology well beyond the scope of what we even do here at CEB, the first thing that group's going to do is look for common ground, right? Mm. So they're going to come together and just, because we all hate these meetings, right? We're all trying to get out of it and say, oh God, it's got a four-hour decision meeting. I'd rather die, right? So the first thing you want to do is see if you can make it short. So the first thing you start with is, all right, what can we all agree on? What can we, where do we start? What is our point of agreement that we can work off from there? But but what happens in a group that's not just large, but very diverse, they're going to find if there's not a lot of overlap across those mental models, then that group can agree on very little, at least left to their own devices. And so the places where they're most likely to agree are what we've come to call the lowest common denominator. They're the things that everyone can agree on across a buying team would be things like we should avoid disruption. We should move cautiously. We should reduce risk. We should save money. Those are the kinds of things that a diverse buying group left to their own devices are most likely to agree on. But think about what it feels like to be a supplier selling into a buying group that's most likely to agree on. We should study it more, do less, uh, reduce, uh, reduce risk and save money. Um, and what happens is as a result of this lowest common denominator buying phenomenon, deal size tends to shrink. Uh, and so uh, uh, margins get crushed. And so you wind up competing not against uh, the competition's ability to sell, but you wind up competing against your own customer's inability to agree. And that's a tough place to be. And I think that's why so many companies we work with today tell us their number one competitor isn't so much the competition. It's just status quo, because yeah. that's where that 6.8 is going to land is in the status quo. And of course, it mitigates against all the differentiation, all the value you're trying to add. If that value is for one of the stakeholder groups and not all of them, which is most likely to be the case, or you have different types of value for different stakeholder groups, they're not going to be able to agree on it. So right. I, I guess if you imagine it was a giant Venn diagram sitting around a table with the intersection in the middle is the basics that everyone wants, it's going to be the simple stuff. And then each of them have some lovely things that would really transform their organization in the outer reaches of their, of their own circle but they're not the same as what everyone else wants. So that's not something they'll agree on. So, you know, if, if, uh, 
if HR, if yeah, I don't know if you're doing some kind of leadership transformation and HR wants, uh, you know, a fo- the whole organization to be empowered and to blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the, the, the head of finance wants it to, to increase this, you know, um, financial awareness amongst all leaders, et cetera. They're all going for different things that they're not necessarily going to agree on. They end up not being in the intersection. So all your clever differentiators and the real reason they would pay a premium for you end up being discarded. Then what's interesting is that the more complex your solution, which again we talked about is is the way you need to go for good reasons to avoid that that replication commoditization, but that more complex the solution, the more likely you're going to run into this problem because yeah. it makes it that much easier for your customers to uh, to disagree or at least if or to disconnect is maybe a better word to yeah. fail to fully come to that that broader vision. So we're really I think as as again suppliers as vendors as partners we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, aren't we, right? So we got to go down this road, but but when we go down the road, we find we wind up in a very bad place. So we got either commoditization on one end or status quo on the other. It's a tough place to be. And so so a traditional approach to sales, if you look at a lot of the kind of, um, you know, sales methodology books um, from the, the, the recent decades, the, the methodology is basically you got to meet everyone. you got to cover all your bases, make a big organization chart, list all the names of everyone who's involved in the decision and go around and talk to each of them, find out what they need and make sure your solution meets their needs. And then great, you've ticked all the boxes, you, you know, so you're going to be able to sell. Now you're saying that the way decisions are made in these committees, in these groups, that doesn't work. Well, you know, in fact, first of all, good luck trying to like figure out who all those 6.8 yeah. <laughs> are because not only may you not know, but so what I find really fascinating is a lot of customers don't know who should be involved in the purchase decision. I was, I was talking to a head of sales uh, at a at a big company just the other day who happened to be on the buying side for our, the conversation we we're talking about. He was in the middle of buying a, uh, it was kind of like a CRM system. It was a you know a, a content management type mm-hmm. system that they were working on and. And and he said, look, the same thing happened to me. He said it was a two million dollar. Actually, it was a smaller one. It's about two hundred thousand dollar purchase. I thought I had the authority to make this purchase on my own. I told the sales rep who was selling it to me that we were good to go. And then right before I signed the contract, it turned out I found out that the whole thing had to go to our own capital review board because anything over one hundred and fifty thousand has to go to our capital review board. I didn't know that. So then I sent it off to capital review board. They completely just decimated the whole thing when it was all done. <laughs> it was a, you know, it was a $75,000 purchase and I got about one third of what I wanted. I didn't even know that was the case. So even if, so it's, it's, yes, you could try to map out the 6.8, but do you know who they are? And for that matter, does your customer know who they are? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the other thing that's really trickier and is kind of where you're headed, I think, is, um, we have a name for this strategy. We, I, I sort of tongue in cheek call it the track them all down and win them all over strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So in talking to sales leaders around the world, about so what do you do about the 6.8 how do you handle this right they say well it takes you know well we have to figure out who they are and we try and go out and talk to them we have a conversation with each one of those individuals we got to track each one of them down again over the phone in person have a meeting go try to win them over so we track them all down and then hopefully we win them over so we got to figure out what do they care about as an individual what are their priorities what are their metrics and how can we position our offer in a way that's going to resonate with that particular individual. So they'll look us in the eye and say, I love it. And once I get that person on board, I go to the next person and I do the same thing with them. I try to get access, try to win them over and I get them on board. It's like that plate spinning act, right? You get the mm-hmm. plate on the stick and you get it spinning and you, you get the second one spinning. By the time you get the third one, the first one's wobbling. But, but you know, it takes just a huge amount of effort to make this happen. And of course, as you get farther and farther out from your sort of this traditional sweet spot of your capabilities, you start talking to people you've never talked to before. So if you're an engineering company, now you're talking to CFOs you know, I speak speeds and feeds, and now i got to talk about internal rate of return and net present value. I don't know how to have that conversation. So even if I could track them down, 
I don't know how to win him over. And so it gets, it's, first of all, it's really hard. The other thing, Ian, I think you'd appreciate, because we all see this, right? It just takes so much time. Mm. The, the amount of cycle time, the, the, the dramatic rise in cycle time, sales cycle time that we're watching across our membership is really fascinating for this very reason that I've got to go. We call this oftentimes the collection of yeses strategy. I've got mm-hmm. to go collect a yes from each of the six point yeah. eight and get the deal done. And it, mit- and it mitigates against a, it mitigates against a smaller firm as well, doesn't it? So on, often what I hear from from clients who are in smaller or solo organizations is that they're kind of losing out to larger firms just because they don't have the manpower to go around and see everyone. You know, it's funny. I, you know, if I were a smaller organization, I, I don't know that, uh, not that they're giving up hope, but I don't know that I give up hope only because I talk to the bigger organizations too. And I'll tell you, they're struggling mightily <laughs> as well. So, so it, it's, and because in many ways, it's not a selling problem. It's a, it's a buying problem. These, you know, these customers, uh, again, if I, if I'm a CFO and you, you're selling an engineering product, why the heck would I want to talk to you in the first place, whether mm. you're big or small? And so it's, uh, it, this access problem is really difficult. And then how do I win them over becomes especially hard. By the way, the funny thing about that strategy to track them all down and win them all over strategy, though, is not only is it hard, the weird thing that we found in all of our research, Ian, is it actually doesn't work. And that's even, so even if you could figure out a way to make it easier, if you were a bigger company or a small company, either way, we found in our really surprising in our research is it actually is ineffective. And that, that kind of caught us off guard. So why is it, why is it not working? Is it, is it what happens when they all get together? I think so. So here's what we found. And, and, and we go there, we put this right in chapter one of the book only because we found it so fascinating and so counterintuitive. And you know, I've been doing this at CB for almost 14 years now. And I'll tell you, this is of all the things we've researched and we've been doing bar charts coming out of our ears. Right? <laughs> this is the one piece of research that I found most compelling only because it's so completely surprised us. Because what we found is the better and better you get at positioning or tailoring your offer to each one of those individual stakeholders, the less likely you are to win what we call a high quality sale, which is a bigger deal at a higher margin. So the better and better you get at positioning your offer to each one of those different 6.8 members of the buying group, the less likely you are to win a high quality sale. And we didn't understand that when we first saw it. It hmm. didn't make any sense. So we went back, we reran the numbers, we tried to break the data, we recut it, we reanalyzed it. And, and what we found is not only is it a strong finding, it's an incredibly strong finding. We, no matter how we tried to break the model, we couldn't make that finding go away. And so we ultimately just chose to, well, I guess we're going to have to embrace it, right? So as we studied it more, what we've come to appreciate again is this is sort of how we, we so we, I've kind of told the story in reverse here, but this is where we landed was this, you know what, at the end of the day, what we have here is not a numbers problem, but a diversity problem. So to the degree that, to your point about Venn diagrams, by the way, it's really hard to draw a Venn diagram six point exactly, circle. Exactly, yeah. But, but nonetheless, if you try to draw, if you were to draw a Venn diagram of that buying group, and to your point, if, if there's a high level, not of numbers, but of diversity, so they're, they're moving in very different directions, so there's very little overlap across their mental models of what they're trying to achieve, and if you think that's the world that you've been dealt, or the hand you've been dealt, and you're trying to sell into that world, and you do everything you can to position your offering to the merit on the merits of value of each one of those individual stakeholders. But if there's very little overlap across those stakeholders, then that group can agree on very little. And what you've done by sort of tailoring your offer at the individual level, you've actually exacerbated those differences rather mm-hmm. than overcome them. You've driven greater disconnect as opposed to driven greater connection. So when we talk about tailoring in this world, which is sort of the heart and soul of the challenger approach, teach, tailor, take control, what we've come to appreciate is you need to tailor not at the individual level, but tailoring for the group to, to drive not a collection of yeses, but we call a collective yes. Mm. Um, because, because again, the, the challenge that we have got to overcome in this world is not our inability to sell 
to individual stakeholders. It's, it's, it's not even a selling problem at all. It's that, it's that group's inability to agree on anything other than that lowest common denominator. So as I like to say, I, I speak in terms of what I call bumper stickers, little catchphrases that capture these big ideas. And the, the bumper sticker here is we need to find a better way to not – we need to do a better job of not just connecting individual stakeholders to us, the seller – but we have to do a better job of connecting those individual stakeholders to each other because mm. it's that disconnect that ultimately is undermining our ability to sell. Because if we just go in and talk to individual stakeholders and do the old, oh, yeah, our solution can do that and it can do that and, oh, yes, we'll tailor it so it does that, we're just pushing them further away from each other um, so that when they do finally come together, there's no greater chance of uh, of agreement. We've got to be pushing them together towards uh, a solution that isn't just – the, the small number of things that they happen to overlap on, we've got to be shaping their 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 thoughts and their beliefs and their ideas for what they need into a direction that they can all buy into. That's right. Shaping, even potentially challenging. So, yeah. so helping that group understand things that they wouldn't necessarily have understood on their own, left to their own devices. And that's where I guess um, your your idea of uh, of commercial insight comes in, because I think a lot of people listening will 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 hear and and understand that and, and have seen the situation themselves many many times where you know they, they they'll end up the client will end up going with the lowest common denominator solution they might even tell them individually well i thought your solution was absolutely the best you were you know way ahead on all these criteria but I just couldn't persuade everyone else that it we needed um you know a gold plated solution or your type of solution we just yeah. ended up with a, a low cost one um but you you talk about using commercial insight because it's not about it's it's not about trying to persuade the customer that your product or service is better because they know that it's about changing changing the way they think about their own business and about what they actually need um tell, so tell us more about commercial insight and what it is and 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 how it's different to something like thought leadership sure i'd be happy to so this is really the heart and soul of uh the work that we've been uh researching for the better part of almost 8 year 9 years now um which we first captured uh, in in a book called The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer, sort of, if you, I guess, the sequel to that, where we get into a lot more detail around what this commercial insight is. Very briefly, and we can come back and dig into on this uh, in a subsequent call uh, if you'd mm. like, but one of the things we found is that in this world of the 6.8, it's not just that you challenge your customer, but who you challenge that really matters. So of those 6.8 are not all created equal. Now, traditionally, we'd say, well, find the one who's got the budget ownership or the senior decision maker or the highest person with the, bit, the best title or find this box on the organizational chart. What we've come to appreciate from a lot of research of the world's best sales professionals is that the person we need to find in this world isn't so much the person who's got this, you know, it's not title, it's not role, it's not authority, it's not, it's not level. It's rather, it's the willingness and ability of an individual to do two things, to build consensus and to drive change. So build consensus across the other 5.8 and drive change because that's ultimately what we're all trying to sell, right? We're trying to get our customers to change their behavior, to do something differently, to stop buying from them and start buying from us, stop doing it themselves, you know, outsource to us, to stop buying our old solution, buy our new solution, stop mm -hmm. buying this small amount, start buying this big amount. But one way or another, existing client or new client, we're trying to get our customers to change their behavior, which of course is what they're trying to avoid. And it's really hard. So finding that person inside the customer organization who is most likely to be what we call a mobilizer, a mobilizer for change, someone who's going to go sort of carry the flag for change around an idea and build consensus around that idea and drive change around that idea is by far, the our data tells us, the best recipe for overcoming the lowest common denominator and building a collective yes around a bigger vision than what the customers themselves would settle for on their own. Now, to do all that, to find this mobilizer, 
you need to actually approach the mobilizer with that which the mobilizer is looking for to begin mm. with. Because it turns out what mobilizers are looking for is not a supplier. They're not even looking for a solution. What they're looking for is an idea, an insight, something that's going to allow them to make money, to save money, to mitigate risk, to penetrate new markets, to perform more effectively, compete more broadly in ways that they themselves, despite all of their own independent research, haven't fully appreciated on their own. So we, we often, in the book, I think we jokingly call commercial insight the mobilizer dog whistle, right? It's that, <laughs> it's that kind of content that only mobilizers hear. But to your point, what we find is to make all this work, we, we've given it somewhat of a wonky name, commercial insight, this kind of content. But the reason why is because it's a very specific kind of insight content that we're talking about. Because commercial insight, first of all, it's insight. That is, it's an idea, it's it's data, it's some it's a it's a story, it's some sort of relevant content that is specifically about your client or your customer's business. It's content that helps your customer think differently, not about the world, not about new technologies, not about big data or the cloud, but very specifically about how that company is performing right now. It exposes them to risks or costs or opportunities that they have failed to appreciate on their own. Now we call that's insight. We call it commercial insight because at the end of the day, whatever you teach your customer about their business, ultimately you want to get them to a position where they say, wow, I got to do something about that. Who can help mm. me with that? You got to be able to say, let me show you how we can help you with that better than anyone else. In other words, that insight's got to lead back to your unique strengths, yeah. which is a footnote means you need to actually know what your unique <laughs> strengths are. Um, but that's, that's the name commercial insight. It is insight that you can ultimately monetize uh, in a way that leads back to your strengths. Now, the reason why why commercial in, no what's interesting about commercial insight is when we when we talk to you know, commercial leaders around the world or those involved in selling and marketing in any role, one of the things we often hear is Brent, we totally agree. You know, we we hear about that commercial insight thing, and in fact, we believe content is king in this world where customers can independently learn. In fact, we've invested a huge amount of uh, of money, time, and effort into content in the last several years because we agree. We think we need to be a thought leader in our industry because if we can prove to our industry that we are a thought leader, that's going to build our brand. It's going to build trust so that our clients, our customers, will come to us first for new ideas, and we can become their trusted advisor because we are the thought leader for our industry, which is all well and good, except for the fact that you know, what we've come to appreciate is that this idea of commercial insight and this idea of thought leadership are two very different kinds of content. So thought leadership, again, is, is content designed very specifically to demonstrate to your market that you're smart, mm -hmm. that you have interesting things to say, that you can contribute to the dialogue, that you've got white papers and infographics and blog posts and webinars and you name it that can help the world understand your part of the world, whether it's big data or cloud computing or, or new technologies or, or whatever it might be. But commercial insight is, is effectively it's a subset of that kind of thought leadership. So yes, it demonstrates all those things that you're credible, that you're smart, you have interesting things to say. But commercial insight is not content about the world. It's not content about your capabilities. It's not content about new technology. It's very specifically content about your perspective or current customer's business. It is content about them and specifically content that teaches them something new about what they are currently doing, how they're exposed to risk, how they're exposed to costs that they haven't fully appreciated and shows them that despite all their learning, that your customer has missed something materially important to their business that's leading them to a position that is materially less well off than they had anticipated to begin with. So the, the bumper sticker phrase here is that you know, thought leadership is content designed to teach your customers that you're smart, but commercial insight is content designed to teach your customers that they're wrong. Just yeah, it's don't gone, ever say it like that. It's gone bite, though. It, uh, it, it's the kind of thing where they go, oh, crap, <laughs> when they, when they exactly see it. That's exactly right. 
Yeah, it's yeah a bit, I guess so it's he, a bit like it's a bit like to put it in a dif- different context. Um, if if a, a painter and decorator to use a completely different um, example, you know th- they could sh- they could prove beyond all reasonable doubt that they were the the greatest painter with wonderful designs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in the area. But if I, as a customer, don't think my house needs repainting, if I don't think there's anything wrong with it right now, it doesn't matter how great that painter is, I'm not going to hire hire them. On the other hand, if the painter shows me that the current way I've got my house painted makes me look drab and boring and all my friends laugh at me behind my back, etc., then actually I'm then going to be motivated to, 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 uh, and how his, the way he would paint it would, would change all that. Then I'm going to be motivated to do something. It's got, it's got bite because it shows me I'm doing something wrong, not just that he's great. That's exactly right. In fact, and most of us are in the business of trying to convince our clients and customers that we're great. And what's so interesting is most of us actually have succeeded, right? So, so if, if your customer is unwilling to buy your product or service or unwilling to pay you the premium for your product or service, our often knee-jerk reactions, oh, they just don't get it. They don't get how great we are. They don't understand how different we are. They don't understand how better we are. So if we, we need to do a better job of convincing them about our story, about our capability, because if they truly appreciated it, They'd pay us for it, but we don't live in that world. And we live in a world where your customer looking at you and I say, no, no, I get it. You guys are better. You are fantastic. No question that you are better than my other two options. That's, in fact, why we invited you to participate in this RFP or this tendering process. By the way, can I get a discount? Yeah. Because the reason why is we're, 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 we're not selling our product or service. We're selling change. And the only way to get your customer to change is not just to embrace the thing they could be doing, but to actually give up the thing that they are currently doing. And if they don't see a need to give up what they're currently doing, then as much as they may love your alternative, they're not going to buy it. I mean, I love Ferraris, but I'm not going to buy one because I think my car that I got right now is good enough mm. and that's good, kind of where we are i suppose good enough is the is the greatest enemy of trying to sell people something new is well what i've got right now is good enough what this low-cost provider is offering me you know is good enough and i think what was is going back to the earlier conversation about decision making the truth is it's not good enough but they just don't realize it because no one's given them the insight that that hits that, that then is pushed around the decision making team that shows them actually this really isn't good enough. That this is what we could be doing if we had this new thing. You know, I was, I was with I was in Liverpool um, two weeks ago with a, a chief sales officer at a, a big global company and his leadership team. They're doing an offsite there, and it was, it was a fascinating meeting. But he summed it up so perfectly for me. He says, "You know, we were talking about this very concept, and he looked at his team and said, you know, guys, what we have to do in this world is, is before we sell the solution, we have to sell the problem.' Mm. And I think that's exactly right. So you got to you got to convince your customer that they've got a problem, and oftentimes. You know, they may have a sort of a gut feeling that they've got a problem. They may even acknowledge they have a problem. But have you sized that problem sufficiently large enough for the customer for them to realize that the pain of same is greater than the pain of change? Mm. Uh, because the, the pain of change is high. And by the way, that phrase is one that we took from a member company that we work with closely uh, and have for years. And that's so with permission. But they that's exactly how they, they equip their the, anyone on their team who is involved in selling is they teach them that we've got to help our customers understand that the pain of same is greater than the pain of change because if think if they think the pain of change is greater than the pain of same then frankly they may love your solution but they still won't go out and buy it or do something mm. about it because what they're doing now is is well good enough yeah i suppose you know anyone listening in and there are a lot, probably a lot of people listening in are from a kind of change management transformation background they'll recognize you know you need a burning platform before irrespective of buying and and in a way you can forget about the the buying thing the first sale is getting is selling them on the idea that they need to do something different so there needs That's to be exactly that burning right. platform. After that, 
if if you're the only person who can help them make that change, then automatically they go with you. But the first That's thing exactly. is figuring it, figuring that they need to to actually make a change. But and then bring us bring us full circle. Then in this world of the six point eight, where this is especially difficult, and inertia is especially strong towards the status quo, finding that mobilizer, that individual who's looking for that idea and is willing to go champion, not you, the supplier a champion that insight about their company that becomes crucial and that's your challenger customer so you i guess brent you there's two so, sounds like there's two core things coming out one is you need that commercial insight that is something that's going to help the customer see that actually they do need to change there is a burning platform for them they need to make the change and you need to find the right person the mobilizer who's going to drive that message into the client organization and drive the decision making so it moves away from just being consensus over the you know the lowest common denominator to actually we all want this we can now see how this is this is going to change our organization I got to be honest, Ian, you know, it, all of this is based on a huge amount of data and a huge amount of research. And, and as a social scientist, as a researcher, I would be I'd be the first to tell you, if we could have found an easier solution, <laughs> I would have been the first to sign up for it because this stuff is complicated. Honestly, yeah. I mean, full disclosure, what we're suggesting here is not easy and it will take a journey for most organizations, small or large, to go down this road. But it is one that's not only well worth it, it's one that's aligned with how customers are buying. And it's, I think companies going forward, even individual organizations or even individual players are going to be hard-pressed to win significantly going forward without this kind of approach. Yeah. and But but to be honest, for the people listening in to this podcast, you know, the people, the audience here are people who are experts in their field. They're people who could create that commercial insight. Um, and it, it, it's, it's kind of a matter of realizing that you need to do it, that your expertise is not, going back to what you said a few minutes ago, it's not about just showing that you're smarter and smarter and smarter about something the customer doesn't think they want. It's about showing the customer that actually they need something. Something really has to change if they're going to succeed. And that's where you, that's where you direct your expertise, um, into that commercial insight. Brent. That's right. You know, in fact, we work with a lot of big global, you know, corporations. We work with a lot of small companies too. And in some ways, I find that the smaller companies have a huge advantage here, even at the one or two person shop. Because it, when I work with even a smaller company, I find that the founder of the company is usually still there, is usually still present. And it's of all the people in the company, the founder or that person who got things started is more often the one that has actually gone out to challenge customers thinking originally because they understood just how disruptive their technology or their mm. service or their approach was. Again, the, the caveat being just don't convince people that what you've got is disruptive, but convince people they've got a problem that that needs that kind of disruptive solution first. Mm. But but we find that, you know, the, the very best salespeople have been doing this for decades. We just found it in our research and gave it a name. But but this is something that's um, really sets the best apart from everyone else, whether you're small or large. Excellent. So, Brent, if people want to find out more about all these changes, the, the changes in the way customers are buying, et cetera, where would they go? Well, so uh, they can go to a couple places. Uh, the book is out there. It's the Challenger Customer. It's, again, a sequel to The Challenger Sale. Mm -hmm. That's available to, uh, you know, in any book uh, outlets around the world online or off. Um, or uh, there's a website for the book, which is uh, www.thechallengercustomer.com. Uh, and uh, and all information bios, more more information about us at CB is all there as well. And we'd, uh, we'd love to start a conversation with anyone who'd like to find out more. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brent. As you said, I'm, I may well take you up on that, that offer of going deeper into commercial insight because I think it's such uh, an important area for the, for everyone listening in. But for now, thank you very much for coming on the More Clients podcast. It's been great to have you. Uh, huge fun, Ian. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Brilliant. Cheers. 